Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, The lines being drawn in Washington aren't entirely partisan. Are Democrats and Republicans banding together to block the president? And Vladimir Putin, friend, enemy, friend again. The White House's on-again, off-again relationship with Russia. It's Wednesday, May 3rd. This week, Congress agreed to a bipartisan budget deal that President Trump's demands had threatened to blow up. Then, President Trump suggested a government shutdown might be in order. Are the two connected? We start with the congressional side of things and my colleague, Carl Hulse. Carl, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Sure. Happy to do it. So you've been reporting on the bipartisan budget deal that was just struck, and you've talked to both Democrats and Republicans about exactly what went down. And the story you found is kind of a surprising one. What can you tell us? Well, it's surprising only in that the two parties that on Capitol Hill that, as we know, have been at each other's throats for years, really came together on this. And they decided to cut a deal and at the same time to cut out the White House in Hmm. making that deal. The story is that they need to get a big budget bill by Friday to keep the government open through September 30th. Rare bipartisan agreement on Capitol Hill over a $1 trillion spending bill that includes billions in new defense spending and $1.5 billion for border security. Trump was making a lot of demands through the person of Mick Mulvaney, the budget director, Mm -hmm. that both sides knew would never fly. They wanted to avoid a shutdown. So the appropriators and the leaders got together and wrote their own appropriations bills, gave each side a lot of uh, goodies and bragging rights, and pretty much left the president's priorities for dead. Not a single dollar for President Trump's border wall, despite the president's insistence that a wall is necessary at Saturday's campaign rally. We'll build a wall, folks. Don't even worry about it. Go to sleep. Go home. Go to sleep. Rest assured. That's the final thing we needed. They really didn't give him much of anything he wanted. I mean, certainly not the big stuff. The White House is spinning like mad, saying this is a win. We got some preliminary border money that's going to lead us to the wall. But they didn't get the wall money, and they got a specific prohibition that they can't build the wall. Uh, They didn't get anything that they wanted on sanctuary cities. They didn't get anything on Planned Parenthood. They did get some more defense money. All Republicans wanted that. And uh, they put it in there for themselves. So this could be a template for future action if they decide the Republicans and the Democrats on the Hill need to team up against the president. 
Carl, how did you come to this understanding of the budget deal, that it was not just a budget deal, but a way of circumventing the leader My of the- My vast experience and knowledge <laughs> besides, of Congress. Besides your, you know, your Jedi intuition. Uh, I mean, it's just sort of obvious, right? So I knew something was up last week when I was interviewing Democrats and trying to egg them on to <laughs> criticize Trump or blame the administration. And they wouldn't say a word. They were very quiet. And at that point, I said, the Democrats are getting things in this bill. Hmm. They really want it to go through. And then at the same time, the Republicans were being very complimentary to the Democrats saying, you know, we're working in a cooperative fashion. You know, we want to work this out. So it just became obvious that the fix was in. You know, it it really became clear. And then when it came out on Sunday, the press releases, you know, just a flood of press releases from Democrats extolling the bill. It Mm -hmm. almost looked like the Democrats were back in charge of Congress. Which – which they're not. Yes, they're not in charge of, of either the House or Senate or the White House, obviously. So, you know, that was, that was a pretty obvious clue. And the Republicans, while they weren't celebrating as much as the Democrats, the Republicans who wrote the bill, mm-hmm. they were saying, hey, you know, we got things in here. There's good conservative priorities in here, and we're going to move forward. Now, the White House has been left trying to explain to the conservative advocacy groups on the outside who are screaming about this bill. No, this is really, really a good deal. Don't believe everything the Democrats say, Mm -hmm. but it's abundantly clear that the White House lost on this budget negotiation. There are things in this bill that I just don't understand. This was not winning from the Republican point of view. I noticed that Lindsey Graham has come out and said, basically, we got hornswoggled. We can't let this happen again. You know, the Appropriations Committee, members of both parties on there, they want to spend some of this money. They've been denied the chance to do it in recent years, and this freed them up. Once they decided to cut out the administration, you know, they really filled this bill up. Carl, hornswoggled? Hornswoggled. Yeah, that's a, that's a uh, technical legislative <laughs> term. What does it mean? That means they took your lunch money. <laughs> I think in this case, they not only took their lunch money, they took their bus money and their weekend movie money. <laughs> Carl, always good to talk to you. Thank you, Michael. Don't get hornswoggled. <laughs> I'm trying not to. Bye. Breaking news. Donald Trump moments ago writing, and let me read this to you. Our country needs a good shutdown in September to fix mess. The President of the United States just called for a government shutdown. Julie, what exactly did the president say in these tweets? So at about 9 a.m., he tweeted, quote, the reason for the plan negotiated between Republicans and Democrats is that we need 60 votes in the Senate, which are not there, exclamation point. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to say um, in the next tweet, we either elect more Republican senators in 2018 or change the rules to allow 51 percent. And then he ended by saying our country needs a good quote-unquote, shutdown in September to fix this mess. Julie Davis is covering the other side of this budget deal over at the White House. Julie, Carl just told us that one way of looking at the budget deal that both parties have just reached is that it shows Republicans and Democrats in Congress are starting to deliberately bypass President Trump. Is that potentially why the president issued this really unusual recommendation yesterday on Twitter that there be a government shutdown. 
Well, look, yes, I think the president is frustrated. And in fact, his budget director came out and briefed reporters shortly after he tweeted those things. We're here today to talk about the bipartisan spending bill. Okay. Um, and I want to focus on that on, on, on that description first before we go into the de- details. Saying this is the reason that, that he made these comments, that, you know, you need Democratic support for these budget bills, uh, for these spending bills. That's just a reality of the way things work in mm-hmm. Washington. We have to have at least eight Democrats support this in the Senate, which is why we've been working with Democrats from the very beginning. Yes, we could have passed a Republican bill only out of the House. But it never would have passed out of the Senate, and then we would have been accused of not being able to function and run the government. I mean, I think what we heard from the president was more on the order of messaging than it was about strategy. I think a lot of this is about explaining to his base Hmm. why it may look like I'm compromising and I'm sacrificing my principles, but really it's because of this system, the swamp, that I can't disrupt. But Believe me, I'm going I'm going to try. And so that's where he is now is these fights are for another day and I'm going to disrupt things. But I think your question is important because it's not really clear where he goes Mm. other than essentially blowing it up and burning it down in a way that will not yield the results he's looking for to get his agenda done. I mean, he could try to shut down the government, but is he going to keep it shut? Does he want to be the president of a country that like essentially doesn't function? That hmm. seems impossible. So I think he has a lot of questions to answer for himself about right. you know what, what he actually is going to do to show people he can get things done. Is there a world in which a shutdown might actually be effective for President Trump? Well, I think what President Trump fantasizes about potentially in this scenario is that there's a shutdown that Democrats get a lot of flack from their constituents, Mm -hmm. that Republicans, the same ones who are reluctant to embrace his priorities right now, also get a lot of flack. And everyone's worried enough about their reelection that they grant him his wishes. But in order for that to happen, you'd have to have a scenario which you don't have this time, which is the president making it very clear what his top priority is, working behind the scenes, laying the groundwork, letting everyone know in advance, okay, this is my line in the sand. This is what we're working toward. And by the way, your constituents all support this. So if you oppose it, you do so at your peril. And if the government shuts down, you are held responsible for that. And it's your hide on the line. Is there any precedent for a president encouraging a government shutdown? I am not aware of one. I mean, the interesting thing about these tweets is that Privately, you often have a case where one party or the other, or maybe even the sitting president, think, you know, if we just shut down the government for a little while, that might be strategically effective. Mm -hmm. But nobody ever says that out loud, ever. And the problem for the president now is that if there is a shutdown, if there's even a hint of a possibility of a shutdown, he's not going to be able to pin it on Democrats. He's already tweeted and told the public, hey, maybe what we need is a good shutdown. So it's never going to be plausible that he is working really hard to avoid one. Julie, I want to get to the second part of President Trump's suggestion, not just that there be a government shutdown, but that Congress change its own rules to make it easier for him to get things done. How exactly would that work? Well, it would work um, similarly to the way it worked with the confirmation of Justice Neil Gorsuch, where Democrats objected to going to a final vote. In normal Senate procedures, you would need 60 votes or Mm -hmm. three-fifths of the Senate to actually proceed. And 
Instead of allowing that, they mm-hmm. eliminate the ability through a parliamentary ruling for senators to actually insist on a three-fifths majority. So they've already done that for Supreme Court nominations. That ship has sailed. The filibuster still exists for legislation, but they could do the same thing. And it's fascinating. Yes, it's fascinating, and it would be unprecedented. And frankly, a lot of senators, including a lot of Republicans, hate the idea of this. because Well, because they know that as good as it might be when they're in the majority, Mm. it will be horrible if they're in the minority. And they also, many of them, if not all of them, sort of respect the conventions and customs of the Senate. And if you lose that, the institution really changes. So it sounds like you're saying that it's unlikely that they're going to consent to such a rule change. Well, I mean, the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, said it's not happening. There is an overwhelming majority on a bipartisan basis not interested in changing the the way the Senate operates on the legislative calendar, and that will not happen. It would fundamentally change the, the way the Senate has worked for a very long time. We're not going to do that. A lot of other Republicans that we've talked to today said the same thing, so I don't think it's going anywhere. Thank you, Julie. Thanks, Michael. We'll be right back. This fall, history is happening. September 14th, 2021. Hamilton, the Tony, Grammy, Olivier, and Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, returns to Broadway. Tickets are on sale now. Performances begin September 14th. Hamilton, back on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. Learn more at hamiltonmusical.com. President Trump and President Vladimir Putin got on the phone Tuesday, reopening direct communications for the first time since the conflict in Syria bitterly divided the two men in early April. During their conversation, Trump and Putin agreed to pursue a ceasefire in Syria. It seemed to signal a return to the special relationship the two seemed to have until they didn't. Peter, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, as always. Peter Baker is the chief White House correspondent. So publicly, the relationship between President Trump and President Putin has really deteriorated. Remind us of what happened to make it get to this point. Well, about a month ago, of course, there was this awful chemical weapons attack in Syria. And President Trump took it upon himself to retaliate uh, with a missile strike. Now, Syria, of course, is a Russia ally. And that just sent the relationship spiraling because, you know, the Americans said, you were there. The Russians were there. You must have known that they were going to do this. The Russians said it wasn't true. We were making false allegations and violating international law and shouldn't have had this strike. And so suddenly what seemed like this promising new relationship between President Trump and President Putin became what President Trump himself called an all-time low. Right now, we're not getting along with Russia at all. We may be at an all-time low in terms of uh, relationship with Russia. This is built for a long period of time. Uh, But we're going to see what happens. So was that disappointment and that condemnation ever the real story for Trump? It wasn't the full story. I think even at the time, he was hedging in his mind. I think he was trying to avoid letting this become a long-term story. Yes, there was going to be a fight over the Syria thing, but he was very careful not to troll President Putin. You know, he wasn't like trashing him on Twitter. He didn't give him bad nicknames, right? <laughs> he, didn't, uh, he didn't make it personal. And I think that was because he always, in the back of his mind, was still determined to try to make this reset, for lack of a better word, work. And uh, now we are a month later. And uh, in fact, they are on the phone talking uh, for the first time since the serious strike. And that purpose is basically to try to see if they can't get this relationship back onto a, a firmer footing. So behind the scenes, 
President Trump was trying to, maybe salvage isn't the right word, but make sure this relationship was still working privately or could still work privately while publicly he was condemning him. What he did was he let his people around him do the tough, harsh language. How many more children have to die before Russia cares? Nikki Haley at the United Nations, Rex Tillerson at the State Department, they were the ones out there saying Russia was complicit or incompetent, one or the other, when it came to the Syria chemical strike. There is an obvious truth here that must be spoken. The truth is that Assad, Russia, and Iran have no interest in peace. It was Tillerson's job to go to Moscow and take a beating from President Putin in Mm -hmm. the Kremlin. There is a low level of trust between our two countries. The world's two foremost nuclear powers cannot have this kind of relationship. They were the bad cop. And Trump was going to be the good cop, in effect. Now he's trying, again, to put this past them by reaching out directly to another leader. That's the way he likes foreign relations. Leader to leader, individual to individual, clearly a function of his past in the business world where he believed in negotiating, Mm -hmm. you know, hands-on. And whether he can make this work or not is a big question. It's It's a relationship fraught with so many different disputes that really resonate in terms of both countries' national interests. Whether a personal relationship can get past that or not, that's not really clear. Why do you think, I mean, you're somebody who's spent a ton of time thinking about the presence of the United States and leadership in Russia, used to live in Moscow and cover Russia. Why do you think that President Trump returns again and again to Vladimir Putin? Why does he seek to strengthen what seems on the surface and even beneath the surface like a broken relationship with a leader who is openly hostile to U.S. aims and U.S. values? Yeah, that's a great question. And we are still trying to figure out and assess what is this relationship with Russia all about. I think what they're thinking is these days is there may not be a grand bargain, but they can find ways to work with Russia on discrete areas where there's some room for agreement. The truth is, by the way, that's pretty close to what President Obama's policy was toward Russia and what President George W. Bush's policy at the end of his Mm -hmm. administration was towards Russia because it's so – Russia is such an important country in the world. It has its fingers in so many different parts of the international sphere that we can't be completely at odds with them if we need them on, say, North Korea or what to do on Ukraine or, the, or, or Europe. And don't forget, we also, by the way, have a shared space program with them. So there's a lot going on with Russia. And every president ends up coming into office finding out that it's really, really complicated. Peter, thank you very much. Great talking to you. On Tuesday, both the U.S. and Russia had positive assessments of the phone call between Trump and Putin. The White House called it, quote, a very good one, and the Kremlin called it, quote, businesslike and constructive. Neither side mentioned the dispute over the chemical attack in Syria. Here's what else you need to know today. And remember, I did win more than three million votes than my opponent. So it's like... Really? I I feel a tweet coming. Well, fine. You know, better that than interfering in foreign affairs if he wants to tweet about me. In her most critical public remarks since losing the election, Hillary Clinton questioned President Trump's judgment and conduct in office, singling out his recent offer to meet with North Korea's dictator, Kim Jong-un. Negotiations are critical, but they have to be part of a broader strategy, not just thrown out on a tweet some morning that, hey, let's get together and 
you know, see if we can't get along uh, and maybe we can, you know, come up with some sort of a deal. That doesn't work. And in a casual aside, Clinton offered an endorsement to the mass protests that have sprung up since November 8th to oppose Trump. I'm now back to being an activist citizen and uh, part of the resistance. And the latest Republican plan to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which appeared to be gaining support in the House, has suffered a major setback. Representative Fred Upton of Michigan, an influential Republican voice on health care, who has drafted previous Republican plans to repeal Obamacare, says he will not support the current bill because it undermines the original law's protections for people with pre-existing conditions. The Trump administration has said that a vote on the bill could happen as early as today, but the Times reports that there is not sufficient support to pass it and that a delay is likely. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wampley.com to learn more.